Welcome to the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast, hosted by me, Jason Saga. I'm a 35-year-plus spondy looking to bring the community closer. I'll be reaching out to organizations, doctors, nutritionists, and anyone that I think can help increase our spondy quality of life. Hey, everybody. Before this next episode starts, I wanted to do a couple of housekeeping items for the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. I wanted to let everybody know that the t-shirts are now available to order. If you go, there's a link that's going to be in the show notes of this episode that you'll hear next. Also, if you go to my website, it's going to be lakeshoregraphics.net, who is my partner for printing these shirts, and it's under the fundraising tab, and I'll have a direct link to it. When you go there, you're going to see one row of shirts, women's shirts. There's little arrows to the left or the right to scroll over, and you'll find the men's shirts as you go through. And the way this is going to run, is, and it says this on the page two is that they will take all orders until February 28th. Once all the orders are amassed, they'll then print the shirts and mail them out after that. What happens is once they have your shirt printed, you'll go ahead and you can either pay for it on the website or uh, call them or ask them to call you and pay for the shirt. And then at that time, once it's ready and they'll then calculate shipping to you and call you back and let you know what the shipping charge is going to be for the shirt. So go ahead, check them out. I hope you like them. And if there's something different, uh, let me know because I'm planning on doing this every few months. I'd like to be able to roll out maybe some different shirts or things of that nature. Secondly, the Patreon page is up. If you go again to spondypodcast.com, you'll find a link to the Patreon page. That is a page that is designed if you like the show and spare a dollar whichever a month, you know, or any of those levels that feel appropriate to you, I, I would really appreciate it. We're going to use anything raised in there to help to keep to build up the podcast. And there are some levels in there where you can achieve certain uh, free, what will be limited edition shirts, shirts that will only be available to people that are uh, giving through Patreon. So again, those two items are out there and let's get on to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. I've been wanting through this podcast to reach out to various people that have done different things related to ankylosing spondylitis, and today I'm very happy to have Ricky White here. Ricky's covered a number of different bases related to ankylosing spondylitis, including as an author, charity founder, developing websites and keeping busy working, and Ricky, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. So let's start this off. You were diagnosed about nine years ago, and you were working full-time at that point. And I think it's very interesting what you were doing as a career at that time when you were diagnosed. Yeah. So, yeah, I was diagnosed around March of uh, 2010. I was probably one of the lucky ones. I was only diagnosed in three and a half years, which has served me well um, up to this point, which we'll probably talk about in a little while. But the reason was is because I was a nurse at the time. And now, although although I was a registered nurse, I'd never heard of ankylosing spondylitis before. But what happened was when I was having prolonged periods of what was being diagnosed as sciatica and lower back pain, you know, having a nurse with a lower back pain in the UK is um, it's almost part of the job description. So it wasn't seen as anything special. But but some of my symptoms didn't add up to one of my colleagues that um, that I was just I was just friendly with. We were talking on a tea break one time. And it was like, you know, you really should get checked out for this. 
Uh, and he said ankylosing spondylitis. At the time, I didn't really kind of understand the words coming out of his mouth. And I was like, yeah, sure, okay. He says, you need to go, uh, to, next time you see a GP, you need to go and ask for this blood test. And he wrote it down for me. He gave me, he gave me the blood test, which was a HLB 27. I was fine for a little while because I'd just come back from sick leave. I, I, I was on some anti-inflammatories. I was working. I was doing my physio exercises. I was doing all the things that most people get go through when they first get diagnosed or before they get diagnosed. And it was a, it was several months uh, later after that when when I went to see uh, my GP again. Uh, but this time it was uh, a locum, which is like a stand-in doctor. My regular GP, uh, general practitioner. If you're in the US, that's uh, the primary care doctor. They're the same thing. She wasn't there. She was off, I, I guess, sick or on vacation. And there was this young uh, standing doctor. And I was talking to her about my current symptoms and how I was struggling and how they were different from last time and whatever we were talking about. And she just kind of started typing away on her computer. And I started to bring up this possibility of having this blood test. And she was already a step ahead of me. And she says, I'm going to send you for this blood test. I was like, oh, OK. I was actually going to ask and talk to you about that. Um, she says, no, let's, let's get this checked out. Um, so she, she did the blood test. The blood had to get sent away. They was The local facility couldn't do it and it was sent away so it was several uh several weeks before i got the blood test back for that actually and I, so i went back to my uh gp again to get the results because we didn't have uh, online in, in england they're very they're a bit far behind with the technology and the healthcare they don't have uh, online blood reporting at least they did nine years ago so i went back to the gp to get my results and uh, my regular gp was there and she very dismissively says, I'll be, su it's not back yet, but I'll be very surprised if you had it. Is this, this is just a waste of money. I don't, I'm not sure why she even did this test. And that made me kind of angry. And then I think it was probably three days later, I get a call from her saying, yeah, your blood tests came back. They were positive. I need to refer you on to a rheumatologist. And so she was kind of left to eat her own words a little bit. Um, I actually never went back to see that doctor again. I don't think. I don't uh, think I blame I think you. Actually, I, yeah, I think that was more through circumstance because I actually moved after that. But so, and, and then I got my, my appointment for my first rheumatologist appointment, which was even worse, uh, actually. My first rheumatology, uh, sorry, my second rheumatology appointment was, was the worst. The first one, I just went, they took a load of measurements. They sent me for scans and, and kind of did the whole workup. And when I went back to get those results, I, I, I saw somebody else who was either a locum or an understudy of the, of the consultant of the actual rheumatologist I was, I was under the care of. And he says, yeah, it looks like you've probably got it. It's hard to tell right now because there's no changes on x-rays and uh, there was no, there was some signs of inflammation on the MRI scan in my SI joints, but there were no other physical changes. So he says, so we'll just have to see how it goes. He said, and the words he said to me were, if you've got it, your bones are going to fuse and then you're not going to have pain anymore. If you And if you don't have it, you're going to be fine. It'll get over it. I was like, uh, okay. And I just kind of walked out stumped. It's like, uh, how was I supposed to respond to that? And that started making me really angry. The more I thought about it at home, the more angry I got. Well, I really should have said, you know, well, how are we going to treat it? What are we going to do about it? Well, can we stop the fusion? You know, it's all these questions rushed into my head. It was like, I was a nurse. I was supposed to know to ask all these questions, but I was sitting the side of the patient's desk and I was just kind of blinded by headlights. I wasn't sure what to say or what to do. And it kind of dawned on me that I didn't really, maybe I didn't understand patients' journeys as, as well as I thought. I did uh, as a nurse. Um, I actually worked in an ICU as well, which 
doesn't help because half of my patients are unconscious and so I just talk to myself most of the time so uh which, which happens a lot you know maybe maybe there was stuff I needed to learn and that's when kind of the whole advocacy thing kicked in not only did I like almost like flicking a switch start advocating for myself in the way I should have done from the start but then I started to help others and kind of build on that and go from there and then I, I actually moved to London I was in uh, Bath in England at the time and I moved to London um, because my wife had got a job there we, we moved we actually weren't we weren't married at the time we were going to get married and we moved together in London and I saw my new rheumatologist at my new job I was at that job for nine months total before I left and uh, gave up working in ICU because I just physically couldn't do the shifts anymore I I, I, there was a period where I got diagnosed where I was off work for three months solid and it used to take me, I used to have a studio flat and it used to take me around 15 minutes to walk, say 20 paces to the bathroom. It was, it was, it was, that's by far the lowest point of my life and my AS journey uh, so far. I was depressed. I was and this this was when I and this was when I got so so basically I, as I as this episode started I went to see my rheumatologist because things just got a whole lot worse worse than they'd ever done before um, and that's when I actually got my official diagnosis and and that was on my first appointment to that new rheumatologist having just moved to London and he went boom okay this is what we're going to do we're going to get you on anti TNS we're going to do this we're going to do this he gave me cortisone shots it was just boom boom it's like why didn't I get any of this in in my other rheumatology why why am I getting all the treatment now when I'm really bad um, and so that was so um, I was blessed in a way that I, I got to saw I see a good got good doctor I was fortunate that I was around people that could help me identify that it was maybe more problem than uh, was initially thought and then I got my diagnosis in just three and a half years because that's obviously saved me a hell a hell of a lot of pain and stiffness and and you know I've got no fusion right now I mean I've got the odd little bone growth here and there but nothing to write home about so I'm functionally very good because of that early diagnosis if if i hadn't have got that early diagnosis then i think things would have been very very different for me well out of curiosity now let's go back to 2010 when you got the diagnosis you yeah. said you had been dealing with some what you thought was sciatica and some other sore back which is understandable when you're moving people around and and on your feet all day yeah but have you ever sat yeah. and thought Okay, how back did I far back did I have this and just not recognize pop a couple Tylenol and carry on my way? Yeah, you know, I have thought about that. And so that's why the three and a half years is probably my best guess. The time it took between all these doctor's appointments that I've talked about and, and kind of thinking maybe there was more and there that was probably less than a two-year period but but thinking back it was probably happening much sooner than that my, my best guess is three and a half years is, is the total from from the first time i got sciatic or, or diagnosed with sciatica yeah so that's my best guess but but actually from the time of seeing the first doctor appointment that we just talked about and, and actually getting through the whole process it was less probably 18 months at the most all you have to do is read some of people's experiences with their rheumatologist 18 months in, in some cases is, you know, it's just super fast uh, compared to what some people go through. Absolutely. So that's had to have really made a huge difference for you. Oh, no, it, it, it undoubtedly has made a huge difference for me. I'm very thankful for that. Happenstance was very kind to me. 
as you've done that now, you've, you've looked and you've said, okay, I, I understand the medical side of it, having the background as a nurse, and then you come mm. forward and now you're the patient and you're, you're experiencing a whole different exposure. By the time you moved to the United States, had you already formulated the idea for the book you wrote, which is called Taking Charge, Making Your Healthcare Appointments Work for You? Uh, yeah, I actually probably had the idea for the book actually several years before I moved to the States. I moved to the States in October 2014. I probably, after, well, so one of the things I did in, and I think I started in that three months where I was, couldn't walk. Um, I actually started a blog, endlesstracks.com, uh, which was my AS blog. It's it's still up. You can still go back and read old posts. I've not posted for, for years. There's nothing new or fresh there necessarily. But some of my old posts are there. And that was a, a form of therapy for me. And it really helped me kind of understand my disease, understand myself. And as I interacted and shared it around, then obviously I got feedback and comments. And then it started me on helping me understand the, the community and, and everything that is kind of encompassed within AS. And that got really popular, uh, not to brag too much, but, you know, I was Google ranked number one in the world for ankylosing spondylitis blogs. That's not the case anymore, obviously, because I don't, I don't, I'm not active on it. But So I, I got I got into this habit of writing mostly through therapy. And then, and then it kind of turned into a way of helping people and, and a form of education. And then, so, so I kind of got this idea for the book. Uh, because I, I, what what I always struggled with is finding somebody I could relate to, which sounds weird. You'd have thought I'd had double the amount of people I can relate to because I'm both a healthcare professional and a patient. But it turns out when you're in the middle, mm, neither side necessarily trusts you as much as, as, as maybe is fair, right? You're tainted in a way. Um, I think that's changed now. Now people know me. That's definitely changed. So I, I I found it hard as well because people were saying, oh, I have this problem, I have this problem. I was like, I don't have any of those problems. And I was like, why don't I have those problems? Am I just lucky? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, actually, no, it's because I've got this this form of education. I've got this nursing degree. I've got this experience. And so these aren't problems for me. But you know what? I have these problems instead, which they don't have. And that kind of hit home that the fact that, well, I'm just me and I've just got to do what's good for me and I've got to try and learn for me and then and although there's these common problems not everyone's the same so we we just kind of gotta gotta deal with that and, and kind of pick our our information our resources from different sources you can't always get to one source right because no one's gonna match your your needs uh, completely so i started formulating this idea for the book thinking well if I've got, if I, these things aren't problems for me, but they're problems for other people, then maybe I can help more people if I just put it in a book rather than a, a series of blog posts, you know? And so I formulated this idea, but getting around to actually writing a book's kind of a big pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> and, and looking back, now I've written actually several books because I've written both fiction and nonfiction now. But looking back, the actual writing the book's the easy part. It's a bit everyone fears the most, but it's actually the easy part. The hard part comes after it's written. Um, with the editing and the, the then the marketing and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so I, I got the idea maybe several years before I moved to America. And when I moved to America, what happened was is my wife went back to the workplace and I became the stay-at-home parent. So we switched roles within the, within the family. And so even though I was extremely busy looking after then a six-month-old and a and an almost three-year-old when we first moved, I kind of still managed to find some time in nap times and things to, to start writing and start doing some stuff for me. And, so, and then I wrote the book. Now, is your wife American? 
she is, yeah. Okay, so that's what brought yeah. you over here. Yeah, we met. She was she was in England for postgrad study. We met there. We got married. We had our kids in England, and then we we moved over in uh, end of October two thousand fourteen. You get to America now. Having AS itself is a as many can attest to is just a fatiguing at times disease. And when my kids were young, I was still married at the time. You were married, but nonetheless, you were. I I would go to work. You would stay home. There and they were little. They required all of your time. Mm. whether you're a man or a woman that stays home with young children and has AS, I give anybody that does that credit because that's far harder than going to work. I think that's possibly true in a way and also not true in another way. So it was a huge adjustment for me to be at home for a start. And I think the fatigue was definitely a problem. And uh, especially when they're not sleeping all through the night or if they're having nightmares or whatever that, you know, they're fine now. They're, they're all they're much older now. They're four and seven now. So, so the sleep's not an issue. But then it was, and so I wasn't sleeping too well, and they weren't sleeping too well. And then add the the general fatigue on top of that, and and things can get a bit grumpy in the household. <laughs> but what I did find it helped was the fact that so I was used to working twelve hour shifts, right? And and actually, I I left ICU to do uh, clinic work, which fed into the book actually. So I actually had I was a, a specialist, and people came to see me. I was at work with anaesthetists and they came to see me prior to surgery and I did some work up on them and things before neurosurgery. Um, they were all having, you know, brain op- operations on their brain and stuff and on their spine. I mean, that helped me cement the idea for the book because I was literally sitting on the other side of the desk, right? Patients were coming, booking appointments to see me. And I, I had to move from ICU because I couldn't do the 12-hour shifts and 14-hour shifts. And, and the physicality in ICU is is immense. So I moved to that position because it was nine to five Monday to Friday it was more sitting down it was more restful that was kind of good and I was managing with that but I think I was even better when I was at home with the kids because what I couldn't do sitting down all day was get up (laughs) and do stuff necessarily all the time right Mm -hmm. I I tried to as much as I can but you kind of can't sit down all day and you can't be super active all day you've got to find this balance and you've got to be up for a bit and then you've got to take a rest you've got to plan your rest up for a bit plan a rest up for a bit plan a rest and with the kids I, I we managed to get into a routine where I could play with them I always played with them at the same times every day and then I knew I could take a sit down and a rest because they were having nap time or they were having tv time or quiet time was so you know I could literally plan their day around what I needed, which helped them because it meant that when I was with them, I was with them. I was playing with them. I was I was I was 100 percent focused on them, not on necessarily on my my fatigue or pain or or the chores or anything that I needed. It was it was daddy and daddy and, uh, you know, and uh, child time. and, And then it's like, okay, daddy needs to take his rest now. You get to go and do this other fun thing or play by yourself or or do something else you know or take a nap or whatever so once i found that routine i actually found physically it much easier to deal with emotionally mentally it's it's very tough but yeah so i think i think that statement of it is both better and worse i think are true i think for me it was when the kids were younger they were all sub one year olds that Mm. it was much easier to plan things but by the time we had three of them and they ranged in age yeah you know five to to one, that's when I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I looked forward yeah. to going to work. Yeah. Be- not that I didn't love my kids or anything, and, and anybody that has kids will understand that. They just know, oh my gosh, they, they're the best thing, but they're also little energy vampires. And I didn't have a ton of a- energy to, to deal with that. Mm, no, I, 
I agree with that. Now, in the nine years that you've had the AS, in the nine years mm-hmm. that you've been advocacy and talking and everything, you're still active in martial arts. But have you noticed that, minus the age part as, as you aged, but have you noticed that your body is not willing to take as much anymore? Have you noticed, is there increased fusing that you've encountered? I actually encountered the opposite. So when I moved to America, I'd probably let myself be a little, having now a desk job, maybe not looking after myself as well as I should have done. I'd put on a lot of, put on more weight. I, I wasn't very flexible, very mobile. I moved to the US and I basically had three problems to solve. I needed to do more for my condition. I needed to lose weight and I needed to find friends, right? Because when you move to a new country, the only friends I've got are the ones that my wife has. You know, I don't have my own social uh, network. So I had these three problems. And so um, I was kind of kind of thinking for a while of how, I, you know, how could I get out on my own and, and do things and get away from the kids for, you know, an hour or two, uh, you know, a couple of times a week, maybe. Or and, and or maybe I should start going to the gym again and, and all this kind of uh, things, because I knew how important the exercise was. I was preaching it, but I wasn't necessarily practicing it. And. I thought, well, you know, I used to do martial arts as a kid and up to about the age of 12 when I, when I stopped, 12 or 13. I was like, well, maybe I could try that again because in a way that kind of solves all three problems at once, right? It, it's getting me, I, I could maybe make friends and that I train with. I'm going to, it's going to help my flexibility and help my condition and my spine and it's going to hopefully help me lose weight. So I, I joined a, a local martial arts school and I have not looked back since. Since then, I went from around 195-ish plus pounds uh, down to 154. My pain score, because I, I literally record, I have a spreadsheet, I literally record my pain twice a day. It's just habit now, thankfully. And my pain scores started dropping, my overall general pain scores, without any change in treatments uh, of medications. Because I'd lost weight, I had less pressure, I, I was getting more flexible. What my martial arts training did was actually increase my resilience. I was coping with my flares much better. It's kind of hard to verbalize how I was coping with flares much better. But physically, I, I felt like it wasn't as much of a big deal as it was. Even though the pain was made, the pain number was maybe the same, it felt like, I guess there was confidence there because it felt like, oh, I've done this. I can do this. This is this. I know what I need to do to get over this flare. Uh, but it also felt like my body is used to stress now through the martial arts. It's used to working hard. My training has built in some resilience into my body, into my joints. I, I can just deal with this now much easily much more easily if i'm brutally honest as i sit here right now i've never ever been better i've never been probably fitter i've never been more flexible and although i have had some deterioration in my scans i don't have any kind of solid fusion yet i I am actually now so when i was first diagnosed i was diagnosed as severe as it was it was progressing very quickly but i got on uh anti-tnf treatments extremely quickly um i was i was given all the best treatments from the go something seemed to have happened that it slowed my progression down significantly even to the point where there was a point when i moved to america i actually obviously stopped taking my anti-tnf and when i was here i had no insurance for the first year i couldn't afford the treatments because you know my wife was trying to find work and uh you know we just didn't we were spending what money we had on on what we needed um, and and you know paying a thousands of dollars or whatever for, for anti-TNF wasn't the thing, which is, was another reason why I needed to make sure I 
started martial arts because I needed to do something, right? If I wasn't taking medicine. And actually, I only recently started back on TNF med two months ago or less than two months ago. Uh, I, I was off them for like four years. And the only reason I started back on them was not from a pain point of view because my pain levels are generally quite low is, is just because there was some deterioration in the scan. It was mild, but, you know, we want to try and keep me as active as possible for as long as possible. So I, I've gone from being classed as severe, have severe AS to now having not even mild AS, having more, it, now I, I could fall into the ca- category non-radiographic uh, SPA with the new classification. So um, something happened and something changed and I'm thankful for that. But So that just helps. So that coupled with the martial arts really does just keep me working. There are days where I am possibly more able than an able-bodied person in an inverted quote. And then obviously there are days where I struggle to walk. But those days, a few and far between these days, thankfully. That's good to hear. I, having had this for the number of years that I've had, I've gone through. When I was first diagnosed, there was nothing but NSAIDs for mm. inflammation reduction. There was no embryos. There was no anything like that. So you just yeah. took it as it went. And now I have a fully fused lower back. I've had the multiple hip replacements. So there's things I can't do martial arts. I, there's things like that that I would love to do. And so when I hear somebody that's receiving great benefits like you are from that type of staying physical. I hope mm-hmm. that anybody that listens to this that has the ability and, and, and understands that, yeah, it's going to hurt. You're going to have days when you're sore, but anything you can do to shed pounds, eat right, and stay active is going to do, in my opinion, and this is opinion, not medical advice, is going to do a lot to help slow the progression of this this disease. Absolutely. And probably the hardest thing about that is the consistency. Without consistency, some almost no, it's not worth doing. Right? You've got to be consistent if you if you take that path. So something that I, I probably don't talk about it as often as I should, but something I found on earlier on when I was training the martial arts, and this, and I think this this rule applies to any any activity you do, whether you're whether you want to run or do yoga or whatever, whatever you want to do to help your condition, is you've got to plan rest. And I don't think I think as a community we're very poor at that. What happens? is we have these flares we have bad days we rest we get better we think oh i feel good today so now i'm going to do these hundred things that i've got on my to-do list and overdo it and oh look now i'm now i'm in the pits again and i see it time and time again from people and they have these huge massive peaks and troughs and it's like well you know if you maybe just try and pace yourself a little bit or you know do stuff but then after you've done some stuff plan a rest break literally say between one o'clock and three o'clock i'm gonna sit down and binge netflix or whatever i'm gonna have a cup of tea and rest Mm -hmm. or coffee or whatever beer or wine (laughs) take your pick so i'm gonna have this rest and then i'm gonna go for another hour or two people really don't seem to do that they seem to be i'm active today so I, i do everything i can and then they pay for it the next day and what i found in is is building in planned rest breaks means that i I achieve so much more than i ever used to achieve uh, when i used to do things that way so i think that's something that people don't it's very hard to get in a habit of doing because we're all really busy we've all got so many demands on us and it does mean saying no to things but i have found that helps me keep more active by planning my rest periods and more productive than than anything else i've ever tried I agree. I I know from 
what's personally worked for me. And now this has taken a lot of years to get the mental ability to do this, but the worse my flare gets, the more I go at it. And I don't mean I'm not going out to run marathons or anything like that, but if I'm having a particularly hard day or I've had a series of hard days where the flare seems to be acting up, that's the days. And again, because of my hips, I'm limited in my ability to to do running or long distance walking or anything like that. But if I'm sitting there watching TV and it's not a a movie, for example, every commercial break, I'm doing push-ups or I stand up and stretch, or I use that commercial break as my timer to say, okay, now it's time to get up and, and move through it. And it hurts the if it's the first commercial break, I'm going to be in some serious pain by the end of it, by the end of that day, by the time I go to bed, it, it makes for me a noticeable difference. Yeah. It's taking that short hit of maybe your pain's a little worse for that short period of time while you get things moving again and, and kind of put that extra effort in. But actually in the long run, you're actually in less pain overall. I think so. I, I don't get flares like I used to. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a really good tip, actually, about using the commercial brakes as a time, and that's a good tip. I'm going to try that one. I found it's enough time for me to, to knock out 20 push-ups and a couple stretches. Um, stretching for me is a big deal. Yeah. So you've moved through this. You've, you're have you an accomplished author. People can access everything you've done from your website, which is rickywhite.net, uh, just like it sounds. That's correct. R-I-C-K-Y-W-H-I-T-E.net. I'll also have a link to that in the show notes. But you get here to the States, and as you're going along, you turn around because young kids writing a book, dealing with ankylosing spondylitis is not enough. You co-found a charity. Yeah, apparently I wasn't busy enough at home with two (laughs) two under fives, yeah. So so let me tell you the story then. Um, So back in 2012, event happened. There was a a lovely lady and someone I'm pleased to call my friend, uh, Jennifer Vischer. Um, he should definitely have on the show, by the way. She uh, started a, a walk. Now, it was a virtual walk, so you didn't have to physically meet in places. And it was called Walk Your ASL. Yeah, obviously a play on words there. And the idea was is in the month of May, it, which is uh, internationally AS Awareness Month, um, it wasn't for a while in the US, not at that time. It, it, it's, it's, the, the, it's being moved in line with the rest of the world. So for the month of May, people with AS would just try a little bit harder. I think all of us, uh, everyone listening, and, and I include myself, is we all could probably do just a little bit more to help our condition than maybe we're doing right now. And that doesn't, and it doesn't matter how active you are now, there's a good chance you could probably just do an extra few steps a day or just something a little bit more. And it was kind of on this basis that she formed the walk because walking is such a beneficial thing to do. And it's something that almost everybody with AS can do to some degree. And getting a little bit extra exercising is, is only ever a good thing for us. So that, that was the premise is, you know what? We're going to track our steps for the month of May and you're going to hold a little competition with yourself, not with anybody else people were in we we do have teams so people kind of group together and uh, kind of are in a team together but you're not competing with other team members teams aren't competing against each other you're just competing with yourself you're just trying to do a little bit more today than you did yesterday or this week than last week and by recording your steps every day you've got some way of knowing how well you're doing or how much you need to 
keep moving today to try and beat your step count. Okay, so it's just a way of encouraging people to move a little more to help themselves primarily. But when everyone starts doing it together, then everyone starts encouraging each other. And if you're there saying, "I'm in a lot of pain today. I've not got many steps in," and you you start having a bad day, people will come to your help and say, "I know it's tough. I know how you feel. We've all got the same condition, but let's just do a few steps together." And so, and the wonderful thing about it was that that it does work, and people have been are helped by it. So that was in 2012 was the first event, and, it, and we've held it every year since. And each year, it's kind of pretty much grown year on year. And what happened was uh, we got to the point where I joined in the second year, and so Jenna was basically doing it on her own for a while, and then some of us who were doing it regularly said, "You know, you need some help," and and, and she asked for help in some cases, and and we just kind of volunteered and helped to run and organize the walk and there come a point where we thought well this is great people are moving more in may but what about the other 11 months of the year because they're just then going back into their old habits after a month it's not long enough to form any kind of habit why are we why can we not do things year round we realize the limitations with the kind of structure of the event itself and and the name and, and things like that so we so jenna decided had this idea that she wanted to form a charity. Uh, the main event would obviously be Walk Your Ass Off, but the charity would then be able to do other events year-round. We would be able to just do more. Uh, and that's what we did. So uh, Jenna was the, was the driving force behind the charity. And there were, at the start of us, there was five founding members. Uh, I, was, I was one of those, uh, the vice chair at the, at when, we, when we formed. And we've been very slowly growing the charity. It's still a very small charity. And we're an all-volunteer organization. No one gets paid anything. We all have full-time jobs and, and all our commitments to do. So we, we are very slowly growing and slowly moving but I think in a way that, that that's a benefit and so we, we formed the charity Walk as One and that's where we are so uh, in May will be our next Walk Your Ass Off we're hoping to have a new event at the end possibly around October time um, this year uh, details yet to be confirmed we're in the process right now of building a brand new website a brand new web app to help with the step recording and team communication there's now message boards in each team so the team's can have their own little community on the website so uh, the, the website if you visit it will be down right now but in a, in a week or two the brand new one will be up and people will be able to look and check us out and and maybe join in one of the walks and you'll be able to record all year round now so you, you you can literally just every time you go for a walk if you've got a fitbit or something you could just log the steps and uh, every day and track your progress year round we when we first started in uh 2012 we had uh, the goal of maybe going around the earth right having enough miles to go around the globe uh, and we smashed it um, we got like four times the amount of steps we needed oh cool uh, collectively yeah collectively we smashed it um, so then we went oh let's go to the moon the next year and then uh, we smashed that um, so for the last uh, three or four years we've uh, we've been aiming for Mars turns out Mars is a really freaking long way away um, <laughs> much further than you can imagine than you think when you think oh well we've done earth ran up the globe and we've done earth to the moon so going to mars shouldn't be that much further right no you, you're completely wrong it's a lot lot further we need a lot um, more people <laughs> yeah we need a lot more steps uh, i did the math several times just to check if it's right uh and despite logging um two billion steps or over two billion steps then uh we're still only about two percent less than two percent of the way there 
Uh, we've got a long way to go. Uh, but we had a 10-year goal of, of getting to Mars, and maybe we won't reach that. Maybe we're too far behind to catch that. But hopefully now we're, we're logging year-round and we're going to have new events. We can start getting closer towards that goal. And the reason we picked 10 years is because at the time, on average, it was t- average of 10 years to delay diagnosis for people with AS, and, and that's why we, we chose a 10-year goal. Oh, neat. Once this new website rolls out, it's also going to be uh-huh. a mobile app? Uh, yeah, it'll be what's called, it's be, yeah, well, it'll be what's called a progressive web app. So uh, I'm sure you've been on websites where it says add to home screen. You've seen that little notification pop up and then you click it and then it, it has an icon just like a regular app. Yes. And then you click it and then it just looks like a regular app, right? So basically it's that. So basically it's that. So if you do that, it looks like a regular app. It, it is technically still a website, but that is the latest and greatest technology. And pretty much a lot of apps are going to be that way these days. Well, that'll let you avoid the uh, like iTunes stores and Google Play and. Well, uh, and being a small charity as well, we have to obviously pay people to build these things for us. Now, Bill, I'm a web developer as well. It's one of the. So when I became a stay-at-home dad, I, I wanted to pick up some new skills and maybe even start my own business because I'd always dreamed of starting my own business, and and that's what I did. I learned how to code and become a, a web developer. So I know those technologies. So you know, I don't have to. Although I'm not building it, um, other people are building it with with more expertise than I. Um, I can still maintain it. But also the other thing is, is uh, you need one set of technologies and set of coding languages for an. an Android phone and you need completely different technologies and coding languages for an iPhone and a completely different set of technologies and languages for the web. Um, so you've got these, so you've basically got to build three apps and they've just got to talk to each other and the databases connect and you just talk to each other. So that's, ba- so, but no one person knows necessarily all those three things. And so you've got to hire three different people to hire, do three different apps. Whereas this way, we've just got one app to build. It's cheaper. It's just as good. If anything, it's better because when we update it, we've only got to update one thing. We haven't got to update three things, which incur extra costs and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's technology that's getting very, very popular. And in fact, Google actually uh, ranks progressive web apps higher on rankings now because it's their, their little baby. Um, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to doing it this way, but yeah, so, um, and it, it should be mobile friendly and I'm sure when we roll it out, there'll be bugs and I'm sure there'll be issues and that's fine. Tell me about them so I can fix them. And then, so when the main walk starts in May, it'll, it hopefully it'll be smooth running. Well, let's hope that that dramatically increases the number of people and the number of steps and, and everything. Well, and that's why why I wanted to redo the website, because I wanted to make it as painless as possible for people to join us. And so now we've got things like uh, login with Twitter and Facebook and stuff. So it just we've knocked down a lot of the old barriers than what we used to have. So it makes the, bar- the barrier to entry is much, much lower. So hopefully that helps with kind of people joining us and staying with us. And if people are kind are interested by this for now like i say the website's not there right now it will be soon in a few weeks i'm not sure when this episode's going to go out but as the time we record and it's not out yet so if you go to facebook uh it's probably where we're most active where uh, most of our people are most active uh if you just go to facebook.com forward slash walk as one worldwide uh, and then that will be our facebook page that i'll put a link for the show notes also on my website spondypodcast.com on the left-hand side of the page, there's a little slider bar with links. I'll put a link directly to okay. the website in there. Awesome. So that'll make awesome. 
multiple spots that people can access it. So if they're listening to the show, they can go to the show notes. They can go to my website. Mm-hmm. They can go to Facebook, yeah. which I'll make sure it's yeah. easily accessible from a number of different spots based upon the show. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, if you just keep an eye on, on the Facebook page and then when it's out, it'll be announced and, and we'll go from there. And hopefully it's going to be a big year for us. So you've got, first and foremost, father, then husband, mm-hmm. AS. Yeah not only patient, but also advocate. And I'm guessing if somebody reached out to you through either rickywhite.net or via Facebook, you'd be happy to, if they're a newer patient or a, a patient that suffered for a number of years but never had the proper diagnosis, by getting your book and even talking with you, they could probably get some good ways to go if they if, if you're open to that and they, they are having issues with a rheumatologist. Absolutely. I think I think to contact me personally, I think Facebook's the best place for the charity. For me, it's probably not the best place. So I am most active on Twitter and I am endless. My handle is Endless Tracks, E-N-D-L-E-S-S-T-R-A-X. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as your Endless Tracks blog that hasn't had anything yeah, happen in about a right. year or so, but it's still there. It's been a while. Yeah. And even then it was just like one post and it was like a year before the other post. It's still there. You can read my old stuff. There's some there's some very popular posts on there about depression. And uh, I had an interview with Dan Reynolds. I interviewed, I was kind of uh, gracious enough to interview him. And there's lots of there's lots of stuff there that can get you started. And then you can always just contact me either through my interest tracks blog or rickywhite.net and, and just kind of talk to or Twitter and just talk to me one-to-one and I'm always happy to help new people that are struggling and if I can't help you or give you the advice you need the chances are I know someone who is um, one of the benefits of now you know being the president um, because Jenna stepped down in July and uh, I become the president of the charity and so one of the benefits is that I now have contacts all over the world you know the Spun Life Association of America I'm, I'm friends with several of the of the members, including their new CEO um, association in Canada, uh, NAS in England, and the ones in Italy and Portugal, and and so I've got I've got contacts all over the world now, which is great uh, because we are uh, Walkers One is a worldwide charity, so to speak. Although we're registered in Maine, we we kind of have people that walk with us all over the world. We're not based in one country alone. So if you're listening to this and you're not, uh, you know, from the United States, it's not a problem. I could probably get you help in your local country or point you to someone who knows how to get you help in your local country. And that's a big thing. I, and I'll, again, I use myself as this just because it's an easy point of reference. I was diagnosed in 84. I didn't meet my first person that I knew of with ankylosing spondylitis until 96. So that was a, that was a period of time. And there was no internet at that time, or at least not in the function or the way it is today. So there was no mm. being able to ask questions besides that once a year, you went to the rheumatologist. Outside of that, mm. uh, there was nobody else to ask anything of, or there was there was no thought process in my mind to even say, well, let me go to the library and see if there's something that can be looked up uh, in a book, because there was no internet to look stuff up on. So now mm-hmm. the connections that everybody has and can reach out, and, and not only that, but the support. If you're having a bad day and you, you make a comment about it, somebody can reach out, and they don't have to say, it'll get better. They just say, man, I'm here for you if, if you need something you know that can make the the biggest impact out of anything is just knowing that somebody's there that understands because if nobody else in your family has it you're kind of on an island absolutely i appreciate your time ricky again i can't believe all the stuff you're doing and maybe we're going to have you on here another time because i'd really love to delve into more about how you anytime python and how that could be 
applicable for people that become stay at home if they're computer inclined and the different things you do. And we look forward to coming up on May with the the AS month and the the charity. And and I want to see more and talk more about that. So I look forward to having you on in the future. And I hope you have a wonderful day. I'd love to come back. Oh, great. You too. It's wonderful talking to you today. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And it was, again, always great to meet somebody that's uh, going through some of the same items that I'm encountering. So it, it makes that community, instead of just reading people's words, I hope it brings us all closer when we hear voices to, to names. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye now.